Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about sepsis. If you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com in the infectious diseases section or in the infectious diseases section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. Let's get straight into it. Sepsis is a condition where the body launches a large immune response to an infection that causes systemic inflammation and organ dysfunction. Let's start this episode off by understanding the pathophysiology of sepsis. The pathogens are recognised by macrophages, lymphocytes and mast cells in the immune system. These cells then respond by releasing vast amounts of cytokines like interleukins and tumour necrosis factor and these cytokines alert the immune system to an invader. These cytokines activate other parts of the immune system and this other immune system activation leads to further release of chemicals such as nitrous oxide that causes vasodilation and it's the immune response that causes inflammation throughout the body. Many of these cytokines cause the endothelial lining of blood vessels or the inner lining of the blood vessels to become more permeable and this allows fluid to shift across the lining of the blood vessel leaking out of the blood vessel into the extracellular space. This leads to edema and it also reduces the intravascular volume. So it reduces the amount of fluid that's in the blood vessels and that fluid shifts to the tissues causing edema. Now this edema around the blood vessels creates a space between the blood and the tissues. So this reduces the amount of oxygen that can travel from the blood into the tissues because of this edema in the way. You also get activation of the coagulation system or the clotting system and this leads to deposits of fibrin throughout the circulation. And fibrin is a component of blood clots and these clots blocking the circulation causes a problem with organs and tissues getting a good circulation of blood. So blood's not getting to the organs and tissues and even when it does get there there's edema which is reducing the amount of oxygen that's getting to the tissues. Activation of the coagulation system also leads to platelets and clotting factors being used up as they form the blood clots. And this leads to thrombocytopenia or low platelets. And this leads to hemorrhages or bleeding from blood vessels. And it causes an inability to form blood clots because all of the clotting factors have been used up. Therefore, when the person starts to bleed, they have difficulty stopping that bleeding. And this is called disseminated intravascular coagulopathy or DIC. And this is something worth remembering for your exams. A chemical called lactate in the blood, which is produced through anaerobic respiration, goes up. So you get a raised lactate because of all the anaerobic respiration in the hypoperfused tissues, which don't have adequate oxygen. And the blood lactate level can be quite a good indicator of how little oxygen is arriving in the tissues. Let's talk about septic shock. Septic shock is defined when the arterial blood pressure drops resulting in organ hypoperfusion. So there's a drop in blood pressure which means not enough blood is getting to the tissues so the organs don't get properly perfused. And this leads to a rise in blood lactate as we already talked about, as the organs begin to do anaerobic respiration without enough oxygen. This can be measured either as a systolic blood pressure less than 90, despite adequate fluid resuscitation, 
or a high lactate level of above 4 millimoles per litre. Septic shock should be treated aggressively with IV fluids to try and improve the blood pressure, and by improving the blood pressure and the intravascular volume, you improve the tissue perfusion. If IV fluid boluses don't improve the blood pressure and the lactate level continues to be high, they should be escalated to the high dependency or the intensive care unit where they can use medication called ionotropes, which is things like noradrenaline, and these medications stimulate the cardiovascular system and improve the blood pressure and tissue perfusion. Let's try and define severe sepsis. A severe sepsis can be defined when sepsis is present and results in organ dysfunction. So this could be hypoxia, where the lungs aren't functioning properly, oliguria, where the kidneys aren't filtering urine, acute kidney injury, thrombocytopenia, where there's low platelet counts due to DIC, coagulation dysfunction, hypotension, or high lactate level of above 2 millimoles per litre. So what are the risk factors for sepsis? Well, any condition that impacts the immune system and makes a person more frail and prone to infections is a risk factor for developing sepsis. So this is patients who are very young or very old, like under one years old or over 75 years. Chronic conditions like COPD and diabetes. Chemotherapy or immunosuppressants like methotrexate or steroids. Surgery or recent trauma or burns can predispose you to sepsis, pregnancy and peripartum, so around delivery. And then indwelling medical devices which can act as a source of infection, such as catheters or central lines, also predispose you to developing infections and sepsis. So how do patients with sepsis present? Well, there's something called the National Early Warning Score, or the NEWS score, which is used in the UK to pick up signs of sepsis. And this involves taking physical observations and consciousness level. So you'd measure their temperature, their heart rate, respiratory rate, blood oxygen saturations, blood pressure and consciousness level. And these can give you an indication as they start to become abnormal that there might be something like sepsis going on. There's other signs of sepsis on examination, so there could be potential signs of the source of the infection like cellulitis or discharge from a wound, cough or dysuria. There might be a non-blanching rash which can indicate meningococcal septicemia. Reduced urine output might indicate sepsis, mottled skin, cyanosis and arrhythmias like new onset of atrial fibrillation. There are a few key points to be aware of. A high respiratory rate, what we call tachypnea, is often the first sign of sepsis. So in somebody that you go to review who has a respiratory rate for no reason of 35, start to think, is there an infection and some sepsis going on here? Elderly patients often present very non-specifically with confusion or drowsiness or simply off their legs. And then neutropenic or immunosuppressed patients might have normal observations and a normal temperature despite being life-threateningly unwell. So be very cautious in these patients. So what investigations would you do if you came across somebody you suspected sepsis in? The first step is to arrange blood tests for people with suspected sepsis. A full blood count can be used to assess for cell count, including the white cells and the neutrophils and also to look for thrombocytopenia. 
Use and ease to assess the kidney function and look for an acute kidney injury. LFTs to assess for liver function and for the possible source of infection. You can get cholecystitis or cholangitis causing the sepsis. A CRP or C-reactive protein is a marker of inflammation and very useful in assessing an infection. Blood cultures are essential in somebody who's septic to look for a bacteremia or bacteria in the blood. And you can use them to grow that bug and test the sensitivities to antibiotics. And a blood gas can be used to assess for the lactate and the pH of the blood in case they have a metabolic acidosis and also to look for the glucose level. Then there's a few additional investigations that can be helpful for locating the source of the infection. You can do a urine dipstick and urine culture to look for urine infections, a chest x-ray to look for pneumonia or lung abscess. A CT scan of the abdomen can be useful for looking for intra-abdominal infections or abscesses. And you can use a lumbar puncture to look for meningitis or encephalitis. Now we get on to the management. And every hospital will have a sepsis protocol and a pathway. And you should follow that pathway for patients with presumed sepsis. Patients should be escalated to the senior decision maker. And an appropriate level of care needs to be made for the patient Do they need HDU or ICU or can they just be managed on ward level care? NICE guidelines recommend risk stratifying patients into low, medium and high risk depending on their presentation. So high risk patients need urgent attention and management. Moderate risk patients may be managed in the community where the diagnosis is clear and it's safe to do so. So they might see their GP or the A&E team or be admitted under the medical team and get discharged and they can be managed at home unless their condition worsens. And always remember to safety net patients if you're managing them in the community. So give them clear instructions about what signs they might have that they're getting worse, and when they need to seek help or come back into hospital. Patients should be assessed and have treatment initiated for presumed sepsis within one hour. And this is often called the golden hour. And this involves performing something called the sepsis six. And these are six fundamental things that you need to commit to memory and be able to recall at any time because this is the core six things for managing sepsis. It involves three tests and three treatments. So the three tests are the blood lactate level, blood cultures and a urine output and they might need a catheter to accurately measure their urine output. And the six treatments are oxygen, if they need it to maintain their oxygen saturations at 94 to 98%. And remember that in COPD, it'll be lower because they have a risk of retaining CO2. So they usually manage to saturations of 88 to 92%, depending on their ABGs. The second treatment is broad spectrum antibiotics. And these will be empirical antibiotics until you know the results of the cultures. And the third treatment is IV fluids. It's really important to get enough fluid into them to maintain their intravascular volume and to ensure they have adequate perfusion of their tissues. Finally, something very important to talk about is neutropenic sepsis. And neutropenic sepsis is a very important medical emergency. Neutropenic sepsis is sepsis in a patient with a low neutrophil count of less than one. This is usually the consequence of anti-cancer drugs or immunosuppressant treatment. So this could be medication such as anti-cancer chemotherapy, clozapine, which is used as a 
antipsychotic in things like schizophrenia, hydroxychloroquine, methotrexate and sulfasalazine, which are all drugs used in rheumatoid arthritis and similar conditions, carbimazole, which is used to treat hypothyroidism, quinine, which is used to treat malaria and occasionally used to treat muscle cramps, and infliximab and rituximab, which are monoclonal antibodies which are used for immunosuppression. So all these medications have the capability of producing neutropenia, and somebody with neutropenia who develops sepsis needs to be managed properly. So you need to have a low threshold for suspecting neutropenic sepsis in patients that are taking these medications. Any patient who's on these medications and has a temperature above 38 degrees Celsius needs to be treated as neutropenic sepsis until proven otherwise. So they're high risk of death because their immune system can't adequately fight this infection and they need emergency admission and careful management. Each hospital will have a neutropenic sepsis policy and treatment is with immediate broad-spectrum antibiotics such as piperacillin with tazobactam, which is commonly known as tazacin. The other aspects of management are essentially the same as for normal sepsis. However, extra precautions and speed needs to be taken. And time is really precious, so don't delay the antibiotics while you're waiting for the investigation results such as the CRP or blood lactate. Just go ahead and give those antibiotics. So thanks for listening to this episode on sepsis. If you found it helpful and you want written notes on this topic and all the other podcast episodes, head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of the Zero to Finals Medicine book. It's got detailed and concise notes on 10 specialties in medicine and is designed specifically to contain the key facts and guidelines that you need to pass your medical exams. And if you don't fancy spending any money, you can get all the notes for free, as well as videos, illustrations and questions on the Zero to Finals website. Just type in zerotofinals.com. And I hope you join me in the next episode, which will be on chest infections.